What a wonderful testimonial brought by the sisters from Carpet. That's the power of our gospel, transforming the community from headhunter to believer in Christ. Thanks be to God. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's wonderful worshipping the Lord together and live high His name in Penang. The first time I came to TMC was about 13 years ago. I remember sitting right in front there. I think I still can see some familiar faces. I pray next time I come, I don't have to wait for another 13 years. Okay? <laughs> I see some of you waving at me. In preparation of our time together, I got to know a little bit more about TMC and truly praise God for you, for how He has worked through you and the church for the last 66 years. What an amazing grace of God. Really grateful to Reverend Shan and all the leadership committee for inviting me here to share the Word of God during your important Mission Sunday. Uh, my name, as uh, MC has mentioned, is Michael Leong, and my wife is here. Let me show you our elder son, Elijah, to my left. Uh, he is third-year university student in California, uh, Biola University, a Christian university, and our younger daughter is starting her first year in Penang over here. So on behalf of Leong family, I bring you the warmest greeting. And by the way, my wife is also here. Now let's turn. Now let's turn to our sermon today. As we all know, right, today's topic, none other than mission is central to our Christian faith. We seek to follow Jesus' examples by being his witnesses to the world as a visible expression of his love, right? Now, given that, I don't know whether you think about this, given that mission and missionary are not found in the scripture, so what's the biblical basis for mission? And how shall we go about answering these questions? In pursuit of the answer for today, this morning, I would like to invite you to turn with me to the passage that we just read by a young lady just now, to chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. 1, 6 to 11. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in many ways of old, you have spoken by the prophets. But in these last days, you have spoken to us in your Son, and we pray now that as we read from the Scriptures, they will be used by the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding, to draw us near to you, do a renewed commitment to Jesus Christ, and to this end, we seek your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Acts is an excellent companion to the Gospel. In the Gospel, Christ offers His life, and in Acts, Christ offers His power. In the Gospel, we see the origin of Christianity, and in Acts, we see the explosive growth of the church. In the Gospel, 
Christ is crucified and risen. And in Acts, Christ is ascended and exalted. Luke called his first book, Volume 1, the Gospel of Luke, was all about that, what Jesus began to do and teach. The second book of Acts, Volume 2, is the continuation of the story. Luke described what Jesus continued to do and teach through the Holy Spirit prior to his ascension. In verse 1, as you can see, Luke made the connection between the two volumes by recounting in his first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. If you turn your Bible back to the Gospel of Luke, the last chapter, the final three verses, I'm going to read to you. And he said to the disciple, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. Verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Very familiar verses, right? Now, crossing over to Acts 1 today, verses 2 to 5, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he has chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there you can see the connections, the conclusion of Volume 1 in the end of the Luke Gospel serve as the introduction of Volume 2 in Acts. The first few verses overlap one another that show again the continuity of the story. When we pick up in verse 6, our first verse in our passage today, the book of Acts begins with the disciples' questions. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? A dialogue of Jesus with the disciples that took place between resurrection and Pentecost prior to his ascension. Luke is kind of, you know, like if you will, re rewinding carefully to the last few hours. The disciples remember very well what Jesus has promised them, that they would sit on the thrones of David. Now that Jesus has risen from the dead and presented a life among them, just as the scriptures has written, therefore the disciples wonder, is this going to be the time now? John Stott helpfully pointed out, the word restores shows they were expecting a political and ter territorial kingdom. The now Israel 
they were expecting a national kingdom. And the clause at this time, they were expecting it to be established immediately. In other words, they are looking for a kind of kingdom that you can find on Google Map. In the Old Testament, the map is hugely important for the Abrahamic covenant. You think of all the lands that God has promised to Israel. But the kingdom of God is not territorial in concept. It cannot be located on any map. It's not the first time that the Jews had this sort of questions. If you remember, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus heard from the two who say, who had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. Think of how Israel has been for years subjected to the oppression of foreign power, and now Rome, how they would pray that the pagan corrupt Rome to be overthrown, sending all the emperors packing. Something I'm sure we can all relate to instantly when thinking about the authoritarian government of today. Lord, are you going to establish your kingdom now? A question not only asked by the disciples back then, but also a perpetual quest by Christians throughout the 2,000 years of church history. Sometimes it's easy for us to think, oh dear, those disciples were aiming way too low. They missed the whole point of Jesus' important teaching. They are looking for an earthly kingdom instead. Well, if we are really honest ourselves, aren't we also often looking for an earthly kingdom? Deep down in our heart, we probably wanting all the promises of God to be fulfilled here and now. Most of us prefer microwave speed to slow cooker, right? One cook in seconds and the other cook in long hours. I think I can see some of the mums are smiling. We might not ask God to re-establish the kingdom of Israel since we are not Jews. Our kingdom might look like this. Lord, when are you going to restore our church to be a larger church with better people, bigger building, and stronger budget? Bigger, better, stronger. Not all bad in itself, but it's that all to it. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom and the ends of the earth, are we thinking about me and my own church? Notice, Jesus doesn't reprimand the disciples' questions. He uses it to reframe their perspective of the kingdom. You know what? Paradoxically, the fulfillment of God's kingdom mentioned in the gospel is actually taking place, but they will not be fulfilled in the ways that the disciples might expect. That triggers us to think of some other scripture, what God has promised. Take heart, it's going to happen according to God's sovereign time and plan. The New Testament is crystal clear. You will see the establishment of the kingdom that the people of God is longing for. As it turns out, it's going to be far greater glorious than any one of us could imagine. But for now, in verses 7 and 8, this Jesus' reply was too flow. 
It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They wanted a timetable, but Jesus granted them power instead as first part of the answer. Not just any kind of power, but explosive, dynamic Holy Spirit power that could raise Jesus from the dead. What else could we ask for? But to the disciples, at best, Jesus has given them a irrelevant answer. And at best, at worst, He has given them no answer. If we understand how privileged we are against over those disciples, you know, they have to wait to live through the daily grind of life over the years, which you can now read through the entire Gospel of Luke in one sitting. The revelation of God comes to them in bits and pieces, but by the illumination of the Spirit, the entire Old and New Testament come to us as a whole. No doubt, they were in a privileged position to be in the presence of God, However, we are in a privileged vantage point as the revelation of God is now fully complete. We all know how wider it is for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to empower everything the church does, right? That's why you have this tagline, nurturing disciples to be a spirit-filled, impactful church. How to be impactful? Because of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspire the very Word of God. The Holy Spirit anoint the preaching of His Word. And the Holy Spirit convict the world concerning sins. We can't ap accomplish God's work in our own strength or run ahead of the timing of the Holy Spirit. We are the way for the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, while serving as missionaries in a restricted country, we run into numerous close calls with the authority. Few times, we were called to the police station for questioning, and one time, they withheld our passport for many days. On another occasion, we successfully passed through a security checkpoint, even though our name appeared in the list, and so on and so forth. It's just amazing how we can walk out from the police station every time in one piece. There's no course available to equip you how to answer the communist regime, for instance. And definitely, it has nothing to do with us. Only one possible explanation. We believe it's all because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as promised by our Lord in Luke chapter, two, chapter 12, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In many cases in the mission field, we don't have it all together. It's okay. God and the Holy Spirit has our back. In the second part of Jesus' answer, 
he revealed the core commission at the heart of verse 8. What is this commission? It is, you will be my witnesses. We are called to be witnesses for Christ and His kingdom. Witnessing is so prominent and the recurring theme throughout the book of Acts. You could go back and flip through the book of Acts. What does it mean to be a witness of Christ? We are going to walk through this very quickly. A witness bring to mind a person who testify in the courtroom. As witness for Christ, we testify to the truth. We share the message, right? Christ is God who come to the earth. He died to pay for our sins. He was resurrected. Now He is ascended. He called us to believe in Him. And through that, we have the forgiveness of sin. This is the good news that we all know. Not only must we have the message, but our lives must truly reflect the inner reality of what we externally proclaim. In a nutshell, we are to be God's witness in word and in deed. Though the message of the witness is straightforward, the demand on the witness has the potential to be costly. Indeed, it's going to stretch us out from our comfort zone. It's going to cost time, sacrifices, and even our lives at times. Christ's last word to us all, you will be my witnesses. No one can say, this doesn't apply to me. Too often, are we overly concerned with our own personal peace or comfort? If the Christian faith is worth believing at all, then it is worth believing all the way through. When we vibrantly live out the message, our weaknesses are going to attract the people who will ask us for the hope that we have, as in 1 Peter 3. Often, you know, you look at the words, right, that we are to prepare so that we can answer when people ask us for the hope. Often, before we even got to share the gospel, our lifestyle or our weakness has already determined whether it's going to invite people to ask us or repelling them away from the gospel. Why would people want to ask us? Is the beauty and fragrance of Christ in us that will invite others to consider the claim of Christ on our life? Think about it. Verse 8 begins with but, indicating a sudden shift. Interestingly, Jesus here is going to address the disciple questions hands head on to describe to them what is the nature and extent of the kingdom of God. Number one, their primary concern should not be the political power that come with the restoration of Israel's kingdom. It should be the spiritual power. As we know, power in God's kingdom is different than powers in human kingdoms. The reference to the Holy Spirit defines its nature. The kingdom of God is His rule set up in the life of His people by the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is spread by weakness, not soldiers, by a gospel of peace, not a declaration of war, and by the work of the Spirit. 
not by revolution. So the first characteristics of the kingdom is it is spiritual in its character. Jesus' reply broadened their horizons. Indeed, the kingdom would begin in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, but it won't stop there. It will cross over to the nearby Judea. In fact, it will venture beyond the boundary into Samaria and then far away from Israel towards the Gentile nations to the end of the earth. What a breathtaking marching order. In a sense, X18 is the key verse and the outline of the entire book of Acts. And also, it is the index of the New Testament letters. Chapter 1 to 7 in Acts describes the events in Jerusalem. If you flip through your Bible, chapter 8 to 12 speak of the gospel in Judea and Samaria. And the remaining chapters 13 to 28 traces the progress of the gospel advancement all the ends of the earth. Now, we have heard X1X so many times, it is hard to feel its impact. But we need to acknowledge what a shock this geographical location must have been to the disciples. The words were not only spiritually radical, but also socially and ethnically unthinkable. If you are like, what's the surprises and what's the offensiveness here? Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. We might think these words instruct us, right, to go to Jerusalem, finish up there, once done, then we go to Judea, once done in Judea, then we move on to Samaria, and once everything accomplished in Samaria, then we finally go on to the ends of the earth. I'm not sure whether we are used to things like this, like, you know, I'm a smaller church. My area is only in Jerusalem. Maybe if I'm bigger, then I could expand out to Judea, and furthermore, when I grow bigger, then in Samaria, and then maybe if, I, if I'm a bigger church, then I look at the end of the world. Is that what Jesus said? This is not what Jesus said. Notice the important connectors and between the four geographical locations, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Luke is very meticulous to record every single detail so that we won't miss it. It is the Holy Spirit who would make them witnesses in all parts of the world at the same time, not one after another, but at the same time, they were to take the gospel to each of those places and their work would not complete until each place has heard about the gospel. So in today's context, right, maybe just very briefly, Jerusalem is like our home country. Judea is like Southeast Asia. We share similar culture. And further out, Samaria is like the greater Asia, which is uh, quite different uh, culture than us, a bit more distant. And towards the ends of the earth is where Jesus is least known. Now back to Acts, for the disciples, 
They have no problem about Jerusalem. That's the city of David where the kingdom would be located. They would also okay with Judea too. Judea is part of the promised land. Sure, they can be witnesses in Judea. After all, Jerusalem and Judea are the Jewish heartland promised by God. But nevertheless, the disciples had a problem. What's the problem? Jerusalem, remember, that's dangerous. They just crucified you, the Messiah, five weeks ago there. And now the disciples also have to go to Samaria. Wait a second. Lord, this must be a mistake. And here's the ethnically challenge and the offensiveness. Samaria is a forbidden land inhabited by people who had turned their back against the Jewish faith. They had intermarried with others when God told them not to. They become unclean. To the Jews, the Samaritans are unworthy of the gospel. How could they possibly go to these places to preach the gospel? It might be tempting for us to dismiss that as the Jewish and Samaritan historical past. We think as Christians, we don't have such problem. Really? If you think deeper, isn't it true that there are certain people that we feel are off-limit to us? Have you thought about who are the modern-day Samaritans? Those we think who are very different from us, be it lifestyle, culture, value, or for whatever reasons, we pay them little to no attention at all, keeping them at arm's length. We don't even have interest in talking to them, let alone sharing the gospel. That's not it. The disciples are to go to the uttermost part of the earth where the Gentile nations are. Seriously, Lord, the disciples is asking, for the Gentiles were seen by the Jews that day as nothing better than the few for the fires of hell. Fundamentally, Jesus challenged the disciple worldview at the core that his gospel will be proclaimed to the end of the world, to all the nations, not just Israel and the Jews. First, as we have seen, the kingdom of God is spiritual in character, transforming the lives of the people. Second, we see here the kingdom of God is international in its membership, including the Jews and the Gentiles, transcending ethnic line, reaching out to all people through Jesus. Today's examples, if you are thinking about today's examples, would be like Jesus saying to us, you are to be my witnesses in Pyongyang, North Korea, in Afghanistan, or in Somalia. You know, the shorthand for be my witnesses to the places that you are reluctant to go or you don't want to go. Some of us might think this kind of witnesses crossing the culture, crossing the boundary to a distant land sounded just too far-fetched. Okay, maybe fair enough, right? What about our next-door majority neighbor? What about the refugees, the migrants that the Lord has brought into our homeland? Are we even considering this cross-cultural mission in our doorstep? Are we welcoming the nations among us? 
The truth is this. There can be no burden for distant, unreached people's group across the ocean without a burden for unreached neighbors across the streets. In verse 8, Jesus demands us to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth as well as our own communities. It calls for our heart to pray for those at home just as much as those being reached by missionaries overseas. So it's both local and global missions. It's not either or. It's both and. While it's easy to be overwhelmed by the monumental task of cross-cultural mission, or we just think this is just too hard. Thank God we have come across individual young couple, some even with little children, giving up their bright career future to serve God as missionary. The other day, we just met with one newlywed couple. The husband is a Stanford uh, graduate who decided to so serve long-term mission in Asia. In SIM, we know of other, one other couple, both husband and wife are medical doctors, graduated from Princeton University. They are serving long-term in Japan now. These are the best of Ivy Leagues. We have another co-worker in Penang who is also a do doctor working among the migrants. These are just few examples of the many who serve in tough places all around the world. But before the Spirit could come, the Son must go. That's the topic we turn to next in Acts. Then in verse 9 onwards, when he has said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, we know while Jesus' return is recorded in the gospel, only Luke gives the detailed accounts of Christ's ascension in Acts. Can you picture yourself right there among the disciples? You saw Jesus' feet started to rising off the ground against gravity. This is no Elon Musk, SpaceX, or NASA. Your hearts are pounding with your eyes wide opening to see Jesus lit up off into heaven. Unbelievable. What a dramatic scene it is. Don't worry, he's going to come back the same way. Now, almost immediately after Christ has told his disciples this final parting command to go into the world and to preach the gospel, he just heads out, making a door dash to heaven. That was it. Jesus didn't open up the floor for Q&A. He didn't say, let's take the time to work out the ministry strategy. Nor did he say, let's wrestle this during our monthly church planting meetings. You know, maybe that will be what Reverend Shan will do, right? Let's talk. But Jesus just disappeared after that. Were the disciples being left alone? Is that the case? We recall Jesus had told them earlier in the Gospel of John, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper would not come to you. But if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. 
Thank God, Jesus didn't leave them stranded. Quite the opposite. His departure results in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He can be nearer to them than before because He is no longer bounded by a physical body. We can be grateful to Luke. He is slowing down here for us to think about this amazing passage. There's more to this than meets the eyes, as we shall see. Suddenly, two angels, as we have just read, appear in white clothing, ask, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Of all the aspects of Christ's works, ascension is the one that is most overlooked. We seldom talk about this. Every Christian, right, knows something about the incarnation and his resurrection. Many even look forward to his second coming. But few could tell you much about the ascension. Nonetheless, Christ's ascension is crucial importance to Christian mission and our faith. Have you thought about what's the value and why ascension matters to us? Why is it important that Jesus is in heaven right now? We know Jesus has done everything for us, but we hardly think about what Jesus is doing right now. What does the New Testament say? It is suffice just to look at, for instance, what Paul wrote in Romans 8. Christ Jesus as the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? The answer is no one and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. All because Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of God, the Father, and interceding for us. Christ's work for us is not just something in the past through His death and resurrection. It is not also just in the future through His second coming. But Christ's work for us is right here, right now, ongoing as we speak. No wonder Christ is described as who was, who is, and who is to come. On the other hand, the book of Hebrews tells us when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until the enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. So in one sense, Jesus is waiting until the Father say, it is time. When the, when the Father says, this is the appointed time, then Christ will come quickly. Today's passage is located in the salvation history, as shown in the picture earlier, between Christ's ascension and His second coming, which we call the church age. As Christians today, we all live in this time period right now. When he comes back, that's when all his enemy would be put under his feet for his kingdom to be consummated. But until that day, 
what Christ followers are supposed to do now. Be witnesses. Be His witnesses. We must go on witnessing until Christ comes again. In closing, let me share this very quickly with you, a couple of reflections. First and foremost, the very reason for the waiting of Christ is the witnessing of the church. How can it be that we are now His people and He is our God? It's precisely because there's a waiting for the witnessing between His ascension and His second coming. And because of that, you and I heard about the gospel and believe. Why the waiting patiently by Christ? So there can be witnessing by the church. Second, the Great Commission isn't just some missionary task given to the church. In fact, mission is the explanation for the existence of the church. God's secret plan is revealed in Acts 1.8. His higher plan is not to re-establish the kingdom of Israel, but it is for the birthing forth of the church for a new paradigm of God's spiritual kingdom. Neil Bingham's he has a famous mission quote, says something like this, the church lives in the midst of history as a sign, instrument, and foretaste of the kingdom of God. One time, I went to a fine dining six-course dinner, long, long time ago. When the appetizer was served, I remember the taste was so seriously good, so delicious. All the spices were blended just right. It really wet my appetite and know the fine flavor has just begun. The whole night I can't help but think about the appetizer has set me up to think if the appetizer itself is already tasted that good, the upcoming main courses are going to be much more epic. Likewise, the church is a foretaste of the kingdom of God. If you will, the church is like the appetizer that bear witness to the upcoming of the kingdom of God. The church gives a tiny glimpse of the goodness of God that make people can't wait for the arrival of the consummated kingdom. That is the very essence of the weaknesses of the church. To be on mission, testifying to the glory of His kingdom to the ends of the earth. Mission cannot be something added to or separated from the essence of the church. To put it graphically, it's easy to understand, mission cannot be just one of the many programs in the church, like in the left-hand side. On the other hand, it has to be the other way around. Everything that the church does revolves around mission, which is at the center of the church. That is to say, church exists by mission, just as fire exists by burning. There's a sequel to Acts, you know? We today are the continuation of the book of Acts. The church participates in the mission of God and bears the witness of the Spirit. What a privilege we have. Jesus is now working through the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
It is our turn to live this story. We learn today as Jesus ascended to heaven, he leaves the remaining works of the gospel entrusted to you and me, to the church, not to the angels, even though there were two angels there, and there's no plan B. The church is mission critical. It takes both God's sovereignty with human responsibility. One mission leader put it this way. He says, no church is a New Testament church until it is involved in global missions. And God called us to be His faithful witness to all the nations. Lastly, Luke is making a point here. Ultimately, our mission for Christian witnessing is to reach to the ends of the world rests not only on the power of the Holy Spirit, but also must be based on the ascended and living Lord who directs His church from the heavenly throne. He is the one who will ensure the sure promise of His return to consummate what He has already started. Acts 1.8, if you will, that's our spiritual DNA. That's our spiritual heritage. That's the way it is. I would like to close with this note. Western countries were all that was known in the past era of missions, and we are very thankful for Western missionary, right? Many of the Malaysian churches are established by our Western missionary. But for the most recent 50 years, Christianity has been predominantly in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, also known as the majority world. This is from the website, uh, Wire Generosity. You could uh, Google it and look for it. 80% of a Christian in the majority world. With the rise of the majority world, along with our Western counterpart, we have a truly global church for the first time in history in fulfilling Great Commission. Do you see that? When we were out in the mission field with SIM in a creative access nation, we worked in a diverse international team. More than half of the team are Asian and African, Malaysian, Singaporean, and South African, and Ethiopian with the rest being Westerners. This phenomenon is also seen across mission agencies like OM and OMF. As we can see, the partnership between the East and the West all the global church is already started to happen. Yet, there's still a huge potential to be explored because the majority world currently only send about 20%. To reach all the nations, we need missionary from the global church. I will just mention this very quickly. In the context of Malaysia, According to WIO Mobilization Index, Malaysia is currently sending about, give and take, 180 missionaries out of the total 1.2 million Christians. That is 0.015%. Just imagine if our goal is to see 0.1%, not 1%, but just 0.1%, for the church to be mobilized for missions, Malaysia could send out 
1,200 missionaries. That's almost about 10 times more than what we currently are sending. There's nothing more, anything unprecedented than this for the global church to take the whole gospel to all the nations. I believe the acts of the Holy Spirit is calling the global church. That includes Penang Trinity Methodist Church to a new dimension of faith for missions. We know all things written in the scripture would be fulfilled. Every nation, tongue, tribe, people will be standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb of God. This is going to happen. We can either be the witnessing Great Commission Christians or the wavering Great Omission Christians. At the end of the day, the choice, is, the choice is clear. And the only question is, are you in? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a privilege for us to be invited to be Christ's witnesses as part of your great commission. Even though the call is too great for any one of us, we thank you for the risen Christ, seated on the right hand of God, who sent us another helper, the Holy Spirit, who is just like Jesus, God, the Trinity, not only to be with us, but indwelling in our heart to inspire the bold proclamation of the gospel. Lord, may you help us to be your faithful witness wherever you place us, both locally and globally. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless.